And welcome to Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network on Monday, June 18th. Uh, I'm your host, Jake Novak. And again, you can follow me on Twitter at JakeJakeNY, at JakeJakeNY. And, uh, you know, I've talked a few, in the last few editions of Novak Now about uh, how news organizations and news shows do not pivot quickly enough to breaking news. So I'm once again being tested to see if I'm not a hypocrite, that I'm going to work very hard not to be that, not to be that hypocrite, because we have some very, very serious breaking news just breaking in the last hour or so from Israel that I want to get to before I get to three other topics. I'm going to try to be lightning round quick today on the program and and do more than just one topic. I'd like to get three and including this breaking news story four. So let's get right to this breaking news. And it's really, really of a serious nature an incredibly unusual nature from Israel. There has been an espionage arrest in Israel of an Israeli former minister, a former minister to uh, the Knesset, Gonev, Gonen Segev has been arrested and charged with spying. And wait till you hear he was spying for, according to the attorney general in Israel, he was spying for Iran, if you can believe that. Now, Gonen Segev might be a name that many of you might, might recognize because he's had some troubles in the past. Now, he was a member of, uh, he was first elected to the Knesset in 1992 as a member of a more right-wing party known as Somet. And they were basically that party's platform was opposed to the peace process, opposed to some of the more dovish aspects of the Labor Party. Um, but as time went on in that first kind of series of his years in the Knesset, Segev and some other members of Tzomet became a little bit more moderate, and they joined Yitzhak Rabin's government at, after some period of time. And Segev's vote was one of the key votes in favor of ratifying the Oslo Accords. Now, whatever you think of the Oslo Accords, I don't really think that that's indicative or tells you anything about this charge. What tells you a little bit more about this charge are the troubles that Segev got into after he left the Knesset. He was later arrested in the late 90s for drug smuggling. Uh, he was smuggling ecstasy tablets into Israel. Again, if you can believe that. Um, spent some time in prison over that. Had some other financial fraud charges found uh, true against him left the country for a while, tried to get back, was back in Israel for some time, and now has been charged with, uh, you know, we're getting a lot of details on this arrest, considering the nature of it and the sensitive nature on it. The Israeli uh, government is saying that Segev had an encrypted, coded communications link with the Iranians that they say that they can prove. And they say that even though he was not, hadn't been in the Knesset for quite a while, he still had some knowledge and information about certain buildings in the Israeli government and what purpose they, they played. Uh, they're specifically accusing him of giving Iran Israel's energy information and their energy divisions. As you know, that's become a much bigger part of the Israeli uh, fabric in the last several years with the huge discovery of natural gas deposits off the coast of Israel in two different areas. So th this is some very, very serious crime on both a political and economic nature, if true. Uh, not surprisingly, Segev's lawyers are, are complaining about the amount of information that has been released about this arrest already in, in the press. And you can, you can imagine why. You know, the words Iran and the words uh, encrypted communication link are pretty rough. But again, to recap this breaking news, former minister... Former government minister Gordon Segev of Israel has been charged by the Israeli Shin Bet and the Attorney General of Israel with spying for Iran for some time. 
And again, this is a man who has had some serious financial and legal problems in the past. And, you know, obviously, I'm not privy to the secret documents that prove his innocence or guilt. In this case, it seems pretty, pretty bad for him. I have to say that just from an from a objective standpoint. But I can tell you that a huge factor in espionage in a lot of cases throughout the world is financial pressure. You get people who are involved in the security services or have certain intelligence clearances. They run into some financial problems and a good counterintelligence agency will be able to identify them and try to take advantage of them based on their financial problems. Now, again, what we haven't seen in the news of this uh, arrest of Segev is how much money he may or may not have gotten from the Iranians. Um, also, from just many years of studying this kind of stuff, both academically and, and, and seeing it in real life situations, I can tell you that the financial aspect of espionage can be very fraught with problems. Because once you get an asset telling you things, you know, a double agent, whatever word you want to use it, a spy inside of a system telling you information in return for money, then that agent is rewarded and has an incentive to not only give you more information, but just to give you any information that might get them some money. And a lot of people who have been involved in counterintelligence, people I've met over the years from my university days or from, from my professional life, have told me that the best kinds of spies are the ones who have an axe to grind, an ideological axe to grind, aren't necessarily doing it for money. They'll ask for money sometimes, especially to cover whatever expenses they might have or to get safety for their families. But when they're doing it to get a paycheck, very often their information starts to grow stale very, very quickly. And that might be what we're dealing with here. But again, I'm not making any conclusions here. I'm just letting you know, once again, very, very serious breaking news from Israel. Now, former Knesset minister Gonin Segev arrested by Shin Bet, charged by the attorney general with spying, and not just only spying against Israel, but spying for Iran, specifically giving Iran, again, allegedly, giving Iran sensitive information about Israel's energy economy, energy assets, uh, where the energy information might be as far as specific buildings in the Israeli government. And, um, and, and also just the background on Gonetzeg, this has been a very, very troubled member of the Israeli political scene for a long time, uh, including drug arrests, other financial problems. He lost his medical license. He had a, a medical degree in addition to have been a soldier in the IDF. So this is uh, a, 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 a not a surprising that someone like Gonan Segev has gotten into trouble again, but it's still shocking that any Israeli, no matter how much trouble he or she is in, would spy for Iran. Uh, this is really something, and, and if this turns out to be proved in court, it's going to be really probably one of the greatest scandals in Israeli history. You can really say that quite conservatively. So our thoughts and prayers go out to any of the innocent people who might be affected by this, whether they're in the Israeli government or or members of Segev's family who may not have had anything to do with this. But my goodness, this is one of the most shocking stories I've seen out of Israel in a long time. And we certainly hope that uh, if there's any damage to Israel that's been done by his actions, it's a cap has been put on that today. And hopefully no more damage will be done if damage has indeed been done. So that's the breaking news at the top of, of, of Novak now that I, again, promise you to be on top of uh, here on the Nahum Siegel Network. I cannot pontificate about slow-moving news organizations if I don't do it myself. Uh, I, too, wish I had more information about this arrest, but I have a feeling I just gave you just about everything you could possibly get. Uh, I will update you on my Twitter feed again. I'm at, at JakeJakeNY, and of course, you can look up any of the other Israeli news sources that you trust and like, both in English and Hebrew, uh, that you might be interested in. So that's, uh, that's one heck of a story to start things out on this Monday, June 18th edition of Novak Now. Um, 
But I, as I promised on my Twitter feed and promised a few other people uh, on my Facebook feed and, and elsewhere this morning, I wanted to get to three other topics today. And I want to try to move as quickly as possible because there's some important stuff, I think, for the for the American listening audience, for the Israeli listening audience, and for Jews and non-Jews as well. And I'm going to start with what was really the biggest story of the weekend, which has been building up for days. It really wasn't just this weekend story. But this story that we're having now about massive uh, protests, I don't mean by marches, just massive online protests and commentary against this issue here at the U.S. Border, border where illegal immigrants are showing up at the border and American immigration officials are separating children from the adults. And, and I didn't say parents. <laughs> and I want you to pay attention to that because it, that, that, that was on purpose. But they're being separated from the adults and put into uh, separate detention centers and separate facilities. Um, my issue here that I want to talk about now, especially for this audience here on the Nachman Siegel Network, is what we're seeing is a growing trend in all the branches of Judaism. This is not just your typical reform and conservative Judaism beef that I've been seeing lately. I'm seeing it also from some Orthodox rabbis who have decided to, and, and we've heard it from evangelical groups on the Christian side, who have decided to go straight to the Torah, straight to other Jewish sources, and immediately try to, to decry this policy of separating the children from the adults. They're calling it basic, you know, this is their way of showing that this is completely immoral, completely wrong, and it's been based in our tradition for thousands of years. Um, there are so many issues with this. There are so many problems with this kind of stuff that we're seeing. It's not just over the immigration issue, although the immigration issue is the one that seems to really get on the fast track towards the moral pontificating and the use of scripture, if you're Christians, and, you know, as they call it, or, or you know, and, and us quoting Versus an apostolic or something from the Talmud, that kind of thing for us. Um, one of the problems that you'll run into very often is that there are, listen, there are a lot of rabbis out there who are very learned. And I want to make it clear, Jake Novak is not a rabbi. I'm not attempting to play one on the radio, nor am I attempting to play one on TV. I am not a rabbi. My point here is not to make a, a halakhic argument or to uh, question the halakhic knowledge of any rabbi from any of the, of the movements of Judaism, Orthodox reform or conservative, even the reform rabbis have to go through quite a bit of training. I am not here to do any of that. What I am here to do, though, is to advise very, very strongly against members of the clergy of any religion and anybody from any walk of life falling into that very alluring trap of self-righteousness, sanctimony, shaming others on this topic. Because unless you have done a couple of things I personally don't want to hear from you on this issue, which means almost everyone talking about it is going to have to be quiet. Unless you have been to the border and seen the situation there, not just now, not just today's detention centers, not just today's situation on the border, but the situation over the last several, several years, I really don't want to hear from you because you have to see what it's like. For one thing, a lot of these centers where these families are either being separated or they're together or whatever you want to call it, or the adults and the children, the situation is much better than not only the horrific conditions that they went through to try to get to this country. And we can talk about the ethics of doing that with the family and taking and literally risking your life. There was yet another incident, by the way, just yesterday with a group of illegal immigrants packed into a van, dangerous situation, got into a high speed chase. The van flipped over. People are dead. You, this happens all the time. Um, but their situation is better than is being portrayed. These are not people in cages like a kennel. It's just not true. Okay. Sometimes you can snap a snapshot for one second and make it look like that. That's another thing. You need to see this for yourself before you can pontificate about it. Second of all, I said at the top of this topic, we're talking about families 
in the news when it really is adults and children. As we found out during the Obama administration, a lot of these adults bringing the children over into the United States weren't their parents. They weren't their relatives. They weren't their friends. They were human traffickers. They were bringing these children sometimes against their will, almost always against their will into this country and attempting to either sell them into some form of slavery, perhaps some kind of prostitution. And we know of thousands of these children that were allowed to be remain in the hands of human traffickers under the Obama administration. A big part of the Trump administration's decision to enforce this policy, which President Clinton signed, this was a Democratic president who signed this policy, that sometimes has been enforced and sometimes hasn't. I understand the Trump administration has ratcheted up the enforcement of this. I'm not denying that. But a big reason for that is because the Trump administration does not want to repeat the mistake of the Obama administration and mistakenly allowing children to go to remain in the hands of human traffickers. Human trafficking, especially since the Iraq war, has become an epidemic across the country. Do you know that there are more people in slavery now than there were in the 1860s and 1850s in, in this country? Okay, we don't have as many slaves as we did then, but throughout the world, there are a lot of slaves. There is a booming slave trade. I have a very good friend from college who went into Air Force intelligence and is still very much involved in, in things going on in the Middle East. And he has told me many, and he is now a, a, a part of an organization trying to end the slave trade. And I mean slave trade. I'm not talking about virtual slaving. I'm talking about real slave markets in places like Iraq, in places like Libya. They exist today. I remember one of my great regrets when that movie 12 Years a Slave won the Best Picture Oscar. I was praying, praying that somebody, that one of the winners, because there were a lot of winners in that movie, would get up there and say, hey, slavery isn't just a 19th century thing. It's really happening today. I was, I was wishing someone would say that, but that was, that was too much wishful thinking on my part. So unless you know these situations, I don't want to hear from you. I don't want to hear from you. Not because you're not, I, I, I'd love to hear from you and what you know something more about, but not this. And unless you have lived in a border town in America and have seen what illegal immigrants have done to public schools in some of those areas, have done to emergency rooms in some of those areas, unless you're someone who's really going to be adversely affected by immigra illegal immigration, I also don't want to hear from you. You know, it's, it's very disconcerting to hear rich rabbis from rich congregations in Manhattan, in Chicago, in Los Angeles, and, and in the cities there, or in very fancy suburbs, talking about how we should have open borders. It isn't going to affect them. They're not going to have a problem. They're not sending their kids to a public school that's going to be overrun with kids who cannot speak English and haven't learned rudimentary skills through no fault of their own. This is, nothing, this is no demonization of them. You know, imagine the people in some parts of upstate New York that have had their public school systems overrun by very, very Orthodox Jews, Satmar Hasidim. We've heard this story many times. It isn't their fault. It isn't their fault, but that's what's happened. Doesn't make them anti-Semitic, although some of them probably are. But I really don't think that the majority of people in Rockland County who are not Jewish are horrifically anti-Semitic. Some of them might be. There's no doubt about it. And some of them have decided to endorse policies that aren't fair. They've gone overboard against the Haredi community there. No doubt about it. But unless someone who's actually from that community is going to talk and tell me about it, I don't want to hear from you. You don't know the situation. Now, you rabbis who are doing this, you probably know the Talmud and the Torah a lot better than I do. Okay? I'm not denying that. However, I would argue that a lot of the stuff you're picking is what I would say cherry picking from the Torah. I mean, there's plenty of stuff in the Torah about how we have to guard ourselves against a mixed multitude. You know, the Erev Rav, for example, for those of you who know what I'm talking about. There's plenty of stuff about regulating who gets in and who gets out. And when the Torah talks about the stranger, you know, the Ger Toshav, the Ger, what's talking about individuals, I'm not talking about tens and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people showing up at a border at once. Okay. 
So I, I don't think that the analogies are very strong. But, but I'm not going to make that the crux of my argument here. You go ahead and make that argument if you're a rabbi. Go for it. But if you haven't been to the border and don't know the situation and don't know the situation over time, I would rather you not talk about this because you don't know the situation. And for many of them who are coming back to me and saying, well, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about what happened under the Obama administration and how this was President Clinton's bill that he signed, but I didn't know about it then. So uh, you can't say that I'm just being selective here. Well, if you didn't know about it then and you didn't even know about it until I just told you, again, you've just reinforced my argument. You don't know this topic well enough to be pontificating about it. And how dare you use our tradition, our Torah, our Masora as a weapon of shame against people when you're just really learning about this topic now. You don't know what you're talking about. Now, again, if you make a fact-finding mission down to the border, spend a year or so going back and forth to a border community, really get to know it, then I'm willing to listen to you. But there are people who have made their careers out of this, based their lives on this. And there are, for example, our border patrol agents who, this is their life. Not only is this their living, their job, but they put their lives on the line to protect our border. And you're going to demonize what they do without really full knowledge? How many of these rabbis know that if you seek asylum with your family as an adult with children, not a human trafficker, an actual adult with a child, you don't do it at a port of entry. You don't do That's not how it's done. I, this is probably all news to these guys, which is why, again, I cannot have you folks speaking about it publicly. I, I can't censor you. You got your First Amendment right. You can say whatever thing you want to say, whether you know what you're talking about or not. But before you shame other people, Really, find out what you're talking about before you do that. Please, please. And as I always say, my religious life, my religious education, whatever level it is, and it's sadly much higher than most American Jews, the fact that I went through yeshiva high school, the fact that I continued my Jewish learning in, in college puts me, unfortunately, in a very small percentage of Jews who have any kind of Jewish education at that level. I wish there were more. But even with that education, my Jewish education, even if it were 10 times greater, only, uh, only informs and educates my political theory, not my politics. The difference being overall principles, overall philosophy, not, oh, who do I vote for? I and mean, if your Judaism is telling you who to vote for in a particular election, you've, you've really devalued your religious traditions. So that's where I'm standing on that issue. It's important to me that we keep it at that, that level. Please, if you're a rabbi or if you're a, a learned Jew and you want to comment about the immigration issue, Keep the religion out of it unless you really, really, really know what you're talking about, both religiously and the immigration issue. And you know what? I have yet to find a full smicha-level rabbi with great knowledge, with great, with, with great learning, who also has great, great knowledge of the immigration situation. I have yet to see that combination. When I meet that guy or that woman, talk all you want, but I haven't met that person yet. All right, second, second issue I want to get to on Novak now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. You're listening to a live broadcast as usual here on Monday, June 18th with Jake Novak here on Novak Now. Our second topic is a, another topic that's just boiled into the public's knowledge now, but again, has been something for people like me. It's been an issue for many, many years, and that is this lawsuit now that's really coming to a head. Asian American students who, are fi who finally really got wind of what everyone knew for years, which was the selective admissions policy that was highly, highly unfair to Asian American students. Finally, they decided to go to court over this, and the Trump administration has decided to side with them. If President Trump is not elected, this case isn't going anywhere. But the, pre but the president got the government's power behind this case going after Harvard University. They got some, this week, we found out some details that we didn't know before, and that is that they found some documents that prove that Harvard was finding a, a backdoor way around 
admitting Asian American students. They decided to create this list of many different categories to score potential uh, students, that's, to score all the applicants on. So there were, of course, grades, there was class rank, there was achievement tests and standardized tests, and the Asian American students, of course, were scoring off the charts on all those. So they had, if they wanted to keep this number of Asian American students relatively down, which is what Harvard wanted to do, they had to create another scoring category or two where they could really get them low scores so they could have an excuse not to accept them. And wait till you hear what, what, what this was, because this is really infuriating. They decided to create a new category of basically like social acceptance and social likability. And they knee-jerk scored a lot of these Asian American students low on that. Basically, we wouldn't like these Asian students. You know, they don't, they're not as friendly, they're not as funny, they're not as social. I mean, all kinds of just talk about prejudice. <laughs> I mean, literal pre, pre-judging, you know, a student. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Now, Harvard's going to push back on this, but, but the, instead of saying, hey, we didn't do this, that's not true, they, they kind of were fuzzy about that. They pushed back with the whole, we have a right to create a utopian society of students as we see fit. We want to take in a certain number of students. The translation to that is that we decided we want to have more student, students from other minorities, African Americans and Latinos. And instead of reducing the number of rich white students, they decided they would like to take that out of the hides of the Asian American students. And boy, does this sound familiar. Does this sound familiar to some of my older listeners right now here on, on Novak Now? I would think so, because this really sounds exactly, exactly like the Jewish quotas at schools like Harvard and Yale. Actually, Harvard wasn't the worst. Harvard, had, Harvard didn't have the worst Jewish quota of all. It, it had one, and it was pretty bad. Bad enough to really inspire the creation of Brandeis University, by the way, in nearby Waltham, Massachusetts. But nevertheless, they had one. But we heard the same stuff about this. Well, socially, the Jews won't fit in so much with our, with our typical WASPy type uh, student and family. We got to keep their numbers down. It will change the fabric of this university, yada, 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 all that, all that other nonsense. And even at the schools where there were higher Jewish populations, again, like Harvard and Columbia, we know there was a Jewish quota. Now, what these guys do with some legal help these, nowadays is they find these little backdoor ways to impose a quota without having an actual quota. If they have an actual quota, they're, they're nailed. That's, that's illegal. So they'll come up with this pop, you know, popularity personality thing on the score sheet, which is really a damning piece of evidence. You can see why this was leaked out, because this is really putting Harvard in a, in a bind, because it looks like a real arbitrary thing that they've created just to, just to keep these kids out. So they've done that, and now Harvard's in big trouble. And I hope that the, the, the Asian American students win this case. I hope that these kinds of arbitrary ways to get around uh, uh, qu rules against quotas are struck down. And I think, and I would really, really like these universities to stop trying to create utopian societies, both inside and outside their universities. You know, we've come full, full circle in America. About 100 years ago, a little bit more than that, let's say we're talking about the year 1900. I'm going to finish this topic on this. About 100 years ago, again, I'm going to go a little bit further than that. In, in the year 1900 in the United States, you're going to be shocked by this. There were really only three universities, and I've heard this from a lot of historians that I trust. There were really only three universities that were uniquely focused on the intellectual exercise. In other words, they weren't interested as much in the social stuff. They weren't as, as interested in college football, which already was becoming a major, major hysteria in, in the country. They were interested in the intellectual pursuit of certain, of every single topic under the sun. And there were really only three universities that were fully committed to this. One was Harvard, one was Columbia, and the other was the University of Chicago. And I can't get into all the, the proofs of this. I'd be happy to do that online if someone wants to talk to me about it. 
But all the other schools, including the Yales and the Princetons and, and, and the University of Pennsylvania, all of them had plenty of intellectual heft to them. I'm not saying they didn't, but their major goals were elsewhere. Their major goals were social, society building, utopian type stuff. They were looking at that. They were looking to be almost an exclusive club. And that, after World War I, started to end in this country. And then you had much more competition intellectually among all the, all the real major universities today. So now we're going back to this now where you have schools like Harvard and so many like them who are doing this. And of course, the Asian American students are the ones who are suffering now, but there will be others who will suffer. And these universities will ultimately suffer. They need to focus on knowledge and not on trying to create utopian social systems because universities, no matter how big they are, no matter how much they might resemble a city, are not a city, okay? When you have most of the community that leaves in the summer or leaves for the winter for weeks and actually has another source of income, then it's not a city. It's more like a summer camp. My final topic today, and we just have to wrap, wrap up very quickly, is, you know, this is a guy who comes up in the news all the time, and I just want people to understand just a little something about how I think the best way to approach him is. And I'm talking about the billionaire George Soros and why he's so important to the Jewish community and why we have to be so careful about the way we talk about him. Now, George Soros is a young, was a young man, yet little, basically just a small boy at the time of the Holocaust in Hungary, and he was born Jewish. And like so many people during that war, he did what he had to do to survive. And what we understand about George Soros is, unfortunately, he's not ashamed of it. I don't think, there's an, I don't think he should be ashamed of it, but I kind of wish he were. Uh, he joined basically some gangs of, of Nazi groups that were stealing from the abandoned homes and properties of Jews who had been sent off to the camps already. And that's what he did to survive. Do I blame him for that? I don't blame survivors for almost anything. I mean, unless you're talking about a survivor who did some horrible crime, pretended to be a Nazi, and actually killed other Jews. I, I just don't feel any, any, any right to criticize what survivors do to live, especially one who's so, who was so young as George Soros, okay? So I just want people to be very, very careful, especially Jews, when we jump on a bandwagon and decide we're going to call him a Nazi or whatever we're going to do. Please don't do that. I just don't think that's constructive. I don't think that that's a good idea. That's not really the point here. But what I do want everyone to understand is that George Soros, now the adult, is someone that we can criticize. I don't think we should call him a Nazi, but we should understand that this is a man that, unfortunately, since he was five years old, or however old he was, has been in the grave robbing business. George Soros made his fortunes, makes his fortunes when he bets against the currencies of countries that are going down the drain, that are about to hit an economic crisis. And to me, there's no doubt, this isn't, uh, this is no doubt why he bets against why well, well, he bets in favor of and pushes for open borders in Europe, because he knows that a massive open border situation will threaten the economies of Europe up and down the line. And when the economies of Europe collapse, he makes money. And I also believe that this is really inherent in his opposition to Israel, and why he's been so hostile to Israel, both in his words and in the money. And he's funded a lot of anti-Israel projects. Israel to somebody like that, to a grave robbing type of investor, the ultimate bear, Israel is a very, very big threat to him because it's a bootstrap country that's done very, very well. It's a country that's done extremely well from the ashes of the war. Really, is there any country in the world that post-World War II that has emerged and emerged positively? Now, there was a lot of decolonialization all over the world, in Africa, the Middle East, Asia. There's been a lot of countries that have emerged since, post, since the end of World War II. Probably about half the countries in the world right now have some kind of post-World War II origin to them. But has any one of them really done as well as Israel? I mean, there's just no, there's really, the answer is no. Not pound for pound, not per capita. Okay, I mean, there are bigger countries with bigger economies. Obviously, India, 
you know, you can name a lot of countries like that, but they have massive problems that Israel and, and already had massive resources. And if you calculated their value before World War II, I don't, I don't think if you adjusted it for inflation, it would be just as, I mean, almost as good as it is now. And that's a big threat to a guy like George Soros. So I ask you to kind of back off on the, on the Nazi stuff with George Soros. Let's not call him a Nazi because that's not his sin. His sin is he's kind of a grave robber. He makes his money when things go bad. And he's hoping for things to go bad, which is why he's in favor of mass migration into Europe, why he's in favor of anti-Israel groups, hoping that they'll destroy that economy. And that's his goal. So it's just something that I wish my fellow Jews would be a little bit more aware of in his case. I don't want to play the psychic psychiatrist. That's my little term that I learned from Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert. It's a brilliant, brilliant term. Because so many times you hear people saying, well, I know, what, I know that Trump said this, or I know Soros said this, but what he really wants is something else. Now, unless you're a psychiatrist, you can't say that. Unless you're a psychiatrist who actually examined one of those people in person, you can't say you know what someone's intentions are, okay? And even then, you might be wrong. So if someone is saying something publicly, you can't, you can't say, oh, I know what he really means, okay? You can't do that. That makes you sound really silly. But what we can say is George Soros has a long record of making money off of the crashing of certain economies, off of mayhem, and that's what he's doing now. And sadly, it's kind of similar to what he did as a child, okay? That's kind of, again, not when, we don't blame him for that, but if that's what he learned how to live as an adult, as an adult, then we have a problem. So here's what, again, just again, to, to recap, I want to get you one more time the breaking news at the top of this hour that I gave you here on the Nahum Siegel Network. Gonan Segev, in a shocking story, one of the most shocking stories out of Israel in many years, former Knesset minister has been arrested by Shin Bet, charged by the attorney general in Israel, with spying against Israel and spying against Israel for Iran. Shocking as that is. And the details that they have put out there in public are pretty, pretty damning. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me on this latest edition of Novak Now, live here uh, on the Nahum Siegel Network. I'll hope to speak to you again uh, next week and a few times this summer as well. Thank you very much.